0: Okay, let's open our Bibles tonight to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be spending just a short amount of time in verse 13, and also you may want to, at the same time, go ahead and find Psalm 73, because that's where we'll probably spend the bulk of our time tonight. So 2 Timothy 3.13 is where we'll start, and then we'll be moving, a few minutes into the class, we'll be moving to Psalm 73. I want to remind you that next Wednesday night is the 4th of July. We won't be having our service next Wednesday night. So no Wednesday night service next week. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 13, and then we'll move to Psalm chapter 73. As we closed last week, many of you were rather surprised to learn of what some teach an open contradiction to the truths of the Word of God. Paul says, "All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." That's a clear fact. It's not hard to understand. But some preach today a message in direct contradiction to what Paul has written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They say that if you desire to lead a godly life, then you will experience temporal prosperity. And if you are not experiencing temporal prosperity, then you are not living the life that you should be living. In their view, if you're not prosperous, you are sinful. I read you direct quotes from these men and women because their views are so out of line with Scripture that I wondered if some of you would believe me if I just stated their views or their positions. Most of us, after all, want to think the best of others, and that includes those who purport to teach the Word of God. It's hard to face up to the fact that a person can make a nice appearance and still be evil. I chose to illustrate false teachings, and false teachers with the Word of Faith movement and the um, the Prosperity Gospel movement, primarily for two reasons. First, the Prosperity Gospel, or the Word of Faith movement, is one of the, if not the, fastest growing segment of professing Christianity in the world today, not just in America, but worldwide. I certainly have seen this firsthand. I saw it firsthand not too long ago, even in India. And in Pakistan. I saw it in Africa last year. Worldwide, this is the fast and growing segment of professing Christianity in the world today. So, in that sense, it's a very contemporary issue. Second, it also appears to me that the false teachers in Ephesus may very well have been teaching something similar to the word of faith movement of today. After all... Paul stresses the persecution point that he made last week in this passage, and he may have done so because there was false teaching currently present in the the Ephesian churches that resembled what we have today. Paul doesn't pull these things out of a hat. Typically, the New Testament epistles are responses to certain questions or situations in the churches. So by his answer, we can read back what the question might have been, or what the situation might have been that had gotten back to Paul. So it is an historical situation as well. I wouldn't want to be dogmatic about that. I don't see it, though, as just possible. I see it as probable, based upon what Paul has been writing. So for those two reasons, I picked that as an illustration. I don't know that that was all of the false teaching, and I doubt that it was. I seriously doubt that it was. But at least there was a hint of the same thing that we've got going on today in Ephesus back then. In fact, I think that hint has been going on all throughout the history of humanity. Remember that in this letter, Paul is encouraging his young associate in ministry, who is currently experiencing difficulties. Timothy is currently experiencing troubles. They're not of the same magnitude as those that the Apostle Paul has experienced, but they're painful to Timothy. i I, I almost breezed over that last week, so I don't want you to miss that. The troubles that Timothy is facing are not of the same magnitude as the ones that Paul reminds Timothy that he knew that Paul had faced. Remember, You you remember what happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? We went through some of those things that had happened to the Apostle Paul. Timothy didn't experience those things. He was with Paul when he experienced some of them on the second missionary journey, but not on this first. But the Lord rescued Paul out of all the persecutions that he faced. And he's going to care for Timothy in Ephesus. Now one sidebar, and it's a very important sidebar, it's not a rabbit trail, but I, w- I wanted to emphasize this this week because, again, I, it's, it's so much to cover last week, I, I don't feel like I emphasized this point enough. While in recognizing that Paul's sufferings were more intense, if all of us just read them and we had to take a vote, who suffered more intensely, we would all vote Paul. But Timothy's sufferings were painful to him. Now watch. You want to lose a friend real quickly in Christianity? All you got to do is minimize their suffering. They come to you with something that is hurting them. And you say something like, hey, listen, you need to get a real problem. You don't know what happened to me last week. Just go ahead and take that friend out of your phone book. Take them off your Internet mailing list because they're not your friend anymore. They won't be. They may still talk to you. But people don't buy that. You see, suffering is individual. The things that bother me may not bother you at all. And the things that bother you may not bother me at all. Suffering is individual. And what Paul is saying is, Timothy, God is going to get you through these things, just like he got me through mine. So Paul is not trying to raise his sufferings up to a point where he should be admired and Timothy should be ashamed. Suffering, suffering. It hurts. If it's happening to you, I know it hurts. And I also know this. The suffering of the soul is always more painful than suffering of the body. The suffering of a son or daughter who's going the wrong way in life is always more, more painful than the suffering of a sprained ankle or a broken leg. So I, I know that. You see, but it's, it's different for everybody, and we should never minimize someone else's suffering. That is not a kind thing to do. It's not a loving thing to do. Pray for them sympathize with them, one of these days you may be in the same boat. So I just wanted to make sure we had that before we go on to the next verse. And I think by the by the looks on your faces, that is something that's very evident to you. Now let's look at verse 13. He says, But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let me read it again. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving being and being deceived. Uh, A few moments ago, I I used the word evil men to describe the false teachers of the Word of God movement. I didn't do that uh, to be hyperbolic. I didn't do it to be sensational. I did it because that's the way Paul describes false teachers. He describes them as evil men. Listen, if someone stands up before you and and purports to teach the word of God. If they open their mouth and say, thus says the Lord. And they don't tell you what the Lord has said. I'm not talking about nuances. I'm not, I'm not talking about slight differences in theology. I'm talking about Jesus Christ taking on the form of Satan in hell. Jesus Christ being tortured by Satan in, in hell to, for the payment of sin. These kind of hideous, hideous doctrines. Benny Hinn's, there are nine different gods. You know, that, that kind of, that kind of thing, that kind of teaching at least means you are acting as if you were an evil man. So that's why I don't, I didn't pull that out of a hat. And I say that with all the love and respect that I can say. I hope Benny Hinn repents. That would be my desire. I, I hope some of these other guys, Copeland and these other guys, get their act together. Because false teaching's not doing anybody any good. But Paul realizes the reality of it. He says, but evil men, speaking of the false teachers, and imposters. That's what a false teacher is. The term false teacher is kind of sterile, isn't it? We've heard it so many times. It just kind of passes from one ear to the other. They're evil and they're imposters. Meaning they're not who they say they are. You'd like to trust the people that stand before you and and say, that's the Lord, wouldn't you? And I hope that you do and, and I hope you trust me until I give you reason not to. That's why I invite you to do just like the Bereans. Read through your Bible and see if what I'm telling you is the truth. Now, please read through it first before you come to me immediately after the service and disagree with something that I spent a lot of time working on. You just thought about it for 30 seconds. But I be, I'm be don't mind you disagreeing. I mean, seriously. I don't mind you disagreeing, but at least disagree based upon something that you've studied and, and you have an honest and open question. But, but there are people who are imposters, and they need to be ferreted out. I've seen them before, I've been in the room with them. People who are grotesque impostors, they are not at all what they pretend to be. So Paul is not painting a very pretty picture here, is he? But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now the contrast here is, between verse 12 and verse 13, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and then, but these bad guys, they're just going to keep going from bad to worse, and the implication is nothing bad seems to happen to them. They've got six mansions, 12 Rolls Royces. And they come to you and say, hey, listen, you're telling me you're right and I'm, and I'm wrong and I'm the one with the six mansions. I knew a person who was in a, in a way quasi-involved in this prosperity kind of movement thing. They wouldn't have considered themselves Christians. But they were certainly, they certainly held to some, some of the same theology. And I remember a, a fine Christian lady went into their office one day and attempted to give them the gospel, this woman and her husband. And as the woman drove away, that, that had attempted to give this couple that I knew the gospel, the one involved in the prosperity kind of thing, this woman looked out the window of their office and saw the woman who was a Christian drive away in an older model station wagon. Now, to let you know, my friends drove a brand-new Jaguar. It was a very nice car. They were, they were very wealthy people. And as this woman was relating the story to me and to others, she says, they came in to try to tell me about Jesus. They want me to believe in Jesus. And you know what they were driving? They were driving an old station wagon. And they wanted me to believe what they believe? Well, the discussion ensued from there, you know, but, but the point is, that's the thinking of a lot of people. Hey, listen, they're the ones with the millions. They must be doing something right. He's the one with the church that's got 700,000 members in Korea. Yeah, that, you heard that right. 700,000 members. They must be doing something right. So, so sometimes the righteous look at it and say, well, maybe they are. In fact, maybe they're doing something right, and I'm doing something wrong. Because there doesn't seem to be any pain in their death, as the psalmist will say. The opponents avoid prosecution and persecution rather, not because they're right, but precisely because they're not right. Because the world loves them, and the world heaps blessing upon them. You know, Satan can bless as well. There is no contradiction between verse 13 and verse 9. Let me just point that out. In verse 9 he says, But they will not make further progress. It's talking about the same people. For their folly will be obvious to all, as also all those who those two came to be, Janus and Jambres. All that meant was that sooner or later they'll be exposed for who they are. This verse is saying, they're, but they're going to keep getting more and more and more evil. And the implication is, it doesn't look like they're going to suffer. Many of those who desire to live lives that honor God, experience suffering while those whose desire is anything but to honor God seem, seem to experience prosperity. This has baffled believers throughout the course of human history. Multitude of attempts have been made to make sense of this situation from a human perspective. Some have merit, others don't. Rabbi Harold Kushner's book, Why do bad things happen to good people? It's published 26 years ago. Millions and millions of copies have been printed and sold. It's probably sold more of, more copies of that than any book of its kind, frankly. But it falls seriously short of the mark. Rabbi Kushner lost a child when they were in their teens. And he, and we sympathize with him for that, of course. But the conclusion that Rabbi Kushner came to was not a valid conclusion. And his book, while interesting and the title is fascinating, the book has some really bad theology in it. So I want to warn you as a Christian, as a Christian, you need to be very careful. Let me just put it another way. As a Christian, you do not need to recommend that book. Because, see, what what Kushner's conclusion was that God is good. And we all agree with that. He says the reason bad things happen to good people, God is good. And he wants good things to happen to you. He wants you to be blessed and prospered. That's his desire. But according to Kushner, God is not able to accomplish that. There are just certain things, he says, that God can't do. His assertion is that God is good, but he's not omnipotent. And that he has lost control, I'm using his words that he used in a debate with Norm Geisler. He's lost control of the situation. So while we sympathize with Rabbi Kushner on the loss of, I believe it was a son when he was 18, I believe, I could stand corrected on that. While we certainly sympathize with him deeply on the loss of his child, we cannot agree with him on the reason why bad things happen to good people. It's not because God has lost control of the situation. Nice try, but it's a blasphemous try. And so as believers, again, please be very careful with recommending that book to someone who has lost somebody. It is terrible, terrible theology. Now, let's look at some good theology, though. Some good theology about this this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And at the same time, what about the prosperity of the wicked? Because isn't it part of the same thing? Why do I see my life with difficulties, and then I see people who do not attempt to honor God at all with their life seeming to prosper. Well, if you've ever thought that, you're not the first person. In fact, a man named Asaph thought that a long time ago, and he writes his thoughts down in Psalm 73. So I'd like for you to turn there as Asaph relates his this intermental struggle that he has when he compares his life as one who is committed to Yahweh, to God, with the lives of those around him who were anything but committed to Yahweh. And he confesses. He's open and honest about it. I appreciate his honesty. He confesses he's discouraged about that. But on further reflection, on further reflection, he is going to realize that his discouragement and his evaluation of the situation has actually been sinful. He's not seeing God as God deserves to be seen. The turning point, the turning point is going to come in verses 16 and 70. We'll get that in just a moment. But we'll see as the psalm unfolds, when Asaph viewed the situation, the the situation that he faces from the divine perspective, he's going to realize how fragile what passes for prosperity today really is. That prosperity is very fragile in the lives of those who don't honor God. There are, there are many people who honor God that are blessed. We're not, we're not, that's not the category we're talking about tonight. There are also people who make bad decisions, and that's why they're suffering. They're, they're a product of their own decisions. That's the truth, too. We're not covering that category of people tonight. What the psalmist is going to cover or is the, the paradox in his mind, the incongruity in his mind between his own desire to honor God and his lack of blessing— and these other folks who don't want to honor God and their apparent blessing. In the end, Asaph is going to understand that real prosperity, genuine prosperity, is found in one's relationship to God. That's where genuine prosperity will be. And the outline of the psalm is fairly simple. The, the present prosperity of the wicked is mentioned in verses 1 through 14. And then the future destiny of the wicked and the righteous in verses 15-15. Through 28, with the two central verses in the Psalm being verses 16 and 17. I've had the good pleasure to present this Psalm in sermon form in several different countries around the world. And the first time being in Germany back in the year 2000 when Cindy and I went to visit that country with George Mueller. It was a great, it was a great time. One thing that I noticed, this is not a situation unique to America at all. This is something that audiences around the world can appreciate. Why do the righteous suffer or why do the righteous suffer and the wicked appear to prosper? So let's look and see what Asaph says about this. Let's look at the first three verses, then I'll comment on them. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The first verse tells the truth. Surely God is good to Israel. That's true. That's a a fair theological statement to those who are pure in heart. That's true. That's a theological truth. And then he confesses. And again, I appreciate his confession. I I appreciate his transparency and his honesty because it helps me when I think the same thing. You're not the only person that ever thought this. People thought it a long time before before it ever came into our minds. He says, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Now, in the New Testament, this, ka- this metaphor really takes, takes full bloom. Uh, in the New Testament, the word for walk is peripateo. And, and peripateoing, to, to butcher the word, Will, I'm sorry. But peripateoing could be, could be to just do this, to move across from one point to another. That's walking. But that's not how the scriptures typically use it, particularly New Testament, particularly Paul. It's used of a lifestyle, right? One, one who lives. This is we use it today. We say, uh, "Hey, how's your walk?" You know, their, their walk before the Lord is not what it should be. So it's it's a, of a lifestyle, and and this the same kind of metaphor. But but as for him, his feet almost slipped. His walk was almost damaged. His the way he lived was almost damaged. My feet, my feet came close to summing. My steps had almost slipped. Probably there's some. Some imagery there of Israel and the rocky places that they had to move through and climb and the, the pathways that were perhaps near sharp edges, sharp cliffs. This is the reason that, is, that he almost suffered damage in his own spiritual life. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked at them and there's a part of me that said, you know what? I'd like to be, I'd like to live in that house. I'd like to have just one of those Rolls-Royces. I don't need six or seven of them. Just one would be fine. Actually, I don't want a Rolls-Royce, but you may not either. but, But you might have thought something like that. Well, he did. And he realized that his spiritual life almost suffered. Almost suffered terribly, as we'll see later on. And then in verses 4 through 12, Read along with me. For there are no pains in their death. He's going to describe this prosperity that the wicked have. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. And they're not in trouble as other men. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. I'll explain what these mean in a minute. Their imaginations and their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge with the Most High? And then in verse 12, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. This is what he saw. This is just an honest observation. There are no pains in their death. They seem to, if somebody else suffers with cancer. Month after month after month, pain after pain after pain, and they're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's someone else who's far from a believer has a heart attack and drops dead like that. There's no pain in their death. Their body is fat. Now, this is you need to remember the culture here. In the ancient culture, if you were heavy, it means you didn't have to work. And so that indicated prosperity. It's, today it's kind of the opposite in, in certain circles, but that indicated prosperity. They are not in trouble as other men. They don't, nothing they do seems to come up wrong. It always seems to make them money, you know. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Part of this is poetic. It's a synonymous parallelism. And therefore, pride is their necklace. They wear their pride like they would a piece of jewelry nobody can touch me. Have you ever noticed how people who are unrighteous yet prosperous, they, they talk about wearing your feelings on, their, on your sleeve, they wear their pride on their sleeve, almost like a, a Boy Scout merit badge. Look at me. Oh, and then with pride comes violence. And this is something, if you've been through through some of the Old Testament studies on Sunday nights, you, you probably heard it come up again and again. Violence was a staple in that culture back then and those who had more got more by doing more violence today it may not be violence per se like knocking somebody against the wall and taking their stuff but it may be a corporate CEO who does violence to integrity we could put it that way and just rapes the company while making sure they themselves have a seventy million dollar golden parachute so everybody else loses their job, everybody else loses their pensions and their their retirements, and then the person that caused all that walks away with the contracted seventy million dollar golden parachute. I'll let you figure out what company I'm talking about. It's not Enron. Okay. That was a totally different situation. But this is a company, just a fortune twenty company that's just happened too recently. But that's another kind of violence though, isn't it? It's another kind of violence to have your whole pension taken away or a bonus that you were promised before the year started and you worked really hard for it, and then three-quarters of the way through the year, the CEO says, I'm going to take away all your bonuses. I'm going to raise your number, so I'm going to take away all your bonuses, yet I'm going to give myself a $7 million bonus at the end of the year. Now, that's violence. I would call that violence, at least a type of it. Their eye bulges from fatness. Again, we would call that person, we would probably think that person had thyroid disease, you know, if that was the case, but that not here. This doesn't mean a disease process. Again, it means they are so prosperous that their prosperity is even visible on their face as their their eyes bulge from that. The imaginations of their heart run right. They mock. They wickedly speak of oppression. There's no fear because they're on top, right? You see this in celebrities sometimes, I think, so-called celebrities. They flaunt the law, then they get their attorney, and their attorney gets them off. And they go before the cameras, and say, like, yeah, I, I did it, I'm happy I did it, I can't wait to do it again. I hope this, this young girl who got out of prison, uh, jail yesterday, the day before, whatever it was today, I hope she doesn't think that. I hope, I hope her life has changed. I don't have a lot of confidence that it will be, unless she finds a new set of friends. But I hope it is. We should pray for her that it that it is changed. But you see their attitude. Their mouth is set against the heaven. Oh, now, now here you, here they've almost crossed the line, haven't they? Not only are they prideful and they wear their pride like some sort of piece of jewelry, but now they start to speak about God. He, he doesn't know what's going on. Where is he? Who is he? They've set their mouths against the, the heavens and their tongue parades to the there. They, to use modern terminology, they're talking trash about God all the time. They're talking trash about religious people. Did you see what she was driving? She was driving an old station wagon. And she's trying to tell me something about spiritual things? You see, that's, that's what is being spoken of here. In verse 11, they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? These kind of people mocking the system would look at, would look at God and say, you must not exist. Because if you existed, you'd strike me down. So they assume that He doesn't exist. You see why Asaph was a little upset. Here he is trying to lead a righteous life, and these people who speak evil against God, who mock God, who commit violence, who wear pride as a necklace, they seem to be always at ease and increasing in wealth. Open in verse 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Now I don't want, you, I want you to look at me, but don't nod now. Okay? But I wonder if any of us have ever thought that. You know, I'm trying to do the right thing, and I get fired. I get laid off. When my buddy, who is doing everything he can to work the system, he still has a job. I wonder if I practiced integrity for nothing. I hope you never thought that, but Asaph did. We'll just we'll lay it off on him right now. Surely in vain. Maybe it didn't do me any good at all to keep my heart pure because it then doesn't seem to be working out for me very good. I've been stricken all day long. Every morning that I get up, instead of your mercies being renewed every morning, it seems like my persecutions are renewed every morning. Ever prayed at night for the solution to a problem? You wake up in the morning and it's still there. <laughs> you pray the next day, you wake up and it's still there. Now, honestly. Now, I, we're having fun, but I, honestly, I want you to think. Have, has your thinking ever dipped into this? Well, again, if if it has, you're not the first one. But I want you, if it has, then listen very, very carefully to these next few verses. Because here will be the answer to the dilemma. In verse 15, he's again honest with us. If I had said, I will speak thus. Now, I assume that thus is saying something's wrong with God. Job does this. Remember in his... In his trials, he finally gets sassy with God, you know, almost blames God for the situation, and then God comes down real hard on him. Where were you when I created the earth? You know, Remember those, that series of questions? If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. Now, Asaph was apparently in a position of leadership, spiritual leadership in the country. If I would have said what was on my mind, being in the position he was in, and all these people would have heard it, he would have betrayed the entire generation. When I pondered to understand this in verse 16, it was troublesome in my sight. Okay. Now that's just brutal honesty. Until, verse 17, the turning point, the single turning point of the entire psalm. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. Now, it doesn't, I don't know that you can make a whole book out of that. It's almost difficult to understand what he's saying at first glance. It's, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Now, one, one, you might could say, well, until I went back to church. Got up, went to church on a Sunday morning, then everything was fine. I know it's great to be there on Sunday mornings. I can see your smiling faces. I know it's great for you to be there. But, but most of the time when you come in with a problem, you still leave with it. The, the problem is still there. Now, hopefully, after you've worshipped, you see the problem from a different perspective. And that's what he's talking about. When he got his focus off of the prosperity of the rich man and back onto his Lord, back onto Yahweh, that's what he means by, until I came into the sanctuary of God. When that happened, everything is going to clear up. But as long as he has his focus on the prosperity of the wicked, on the prosperity of those who don't care a thing about God, then he's never going to get it right, and neither will you. If your focus is entirely upon those people, those people, and the the ones that Paul calls evil and imposters, if if that is where your focus is, you're never going to get through it. And you may very well betray, maybe not a generation of that people, you may betray your family, because they're looking to you for spiritual leadership. They're looking to you, mom and dad, to see how you handle the problems that you're faced with, because you know one of these days they're going to be a mom and dad. And they're going to face not the same problem, but similar problems, the same categories of problems. And they're going to remember back how you faced that giant and what you did. Did you have to run to the medicine cabinet? And sometimes there are chemical imbalances that cause that. But I'm saying, is that? did you have to run to the bar, pour yourself a, a glass of Scots or something? Is that how dad used to handle his problems? Well, guess what your son is going to do? Probably, most likely... If that's the model that you've set for him, when problems get really tough for him, and he's got a terrible problem, he's going to probably run to the to the cabinet as well and pour himself a, a glass full of uh, whiskey because that's how that's the model that he has. So while you may not betray a generation of your children or a generation of thy children, means the entire the entirety of Israel at that time, you may very well be, betray somebody you don't want to until I came into the sanctuary of God. That's the answer. Get, get, we need to get our focus off of the apparent prosperity of the wicked, and that's what he's going to show us. As soon as he saw God, then now, now he's going to see things more clearly. When our focus is off of God, the way that we see reality is, is, is through blurred lenses. But if we look through the reality of the lens of Jesus Christ, then everything becomes much more clear. And watch what he says. Surely you set them in slippery places. So the first thing he's going to do is he said, you know, their prosperity was only really apparent. You set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. I don't know if you've had this opportunity. I have. I've had the opportunity to talk to some of these folks that have all this apparent prosperity, but yet despise God. Guess what? It's apparent prosperity. Because they would trade all of their millions and millions and millions for one day of the inner contentment that you have. Now, they may not ever tell you that, but if you sit them down and get them to be honest with you, that's the reality. They would give every dime they had if their daughter would just get off drugs. See, the prosperity is is apparent because God's going to set them in slippery places. He, he Cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment and utterly swept away by sudden terror. Now, I think this is both in this life and in the next. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise thy form. Then in verse 21. So that he, he sees clearly now what, that their prosperity may be not really as prosperous as everybody thought at first glance. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. I love a man who can look at himself in the mirror and see himself as he really is. Because when he was thinking that way, when his focus was on the the apparent prosperity of the wicked, you, you see how he describes himself? I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was like a donkey. That's about as much as intelligence as I was exercising. And he's surprised at himself. Oh, and then he sees his own position. First he sees the reality of theirs, and then all of a sudden, his life doesn't look quite so bad. And he realizes what he has. Listen, you've got Jesus Christ. What's that worth to you? You've got eternal life. How much are you going to sell that for? Honestly, would you trade your relationship with Jesus Christ right now for six mansions spread throughout the world like one of these false teachers that I mentioned. No you wouldn't. Not now not in a million years from now. So who's really wealthy? He'd love to have what you have if that. If indeed I'm right about that particular man's eternal status. One of these days he's going he to really, really want what you have. So he sees them now he sees himself. When I was embittered when my heart was embittered I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. You've taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel, you'll guide me, and afterwards, you'll receive me into glory. The hymn writer said, give me Jesus. You can have all this world has to offer. Just give me Jesus. Can you honestly say that tonight? That's what the psalmist is saying. You can have all of that. Especially when it comes time to die. Remember that hymn? When it's when I come when it comes my time to die, they can have all that other stuff. Give me Jesus. The old joke: I've never seen a hearse hauling a U-Haul. I live. You know. You know what? I'll live my whole life. I'm gonna gladly live my whole life so that in the last 30 seconds of it, I don't have to panic. I don't want to get to the end of my life. And and when the doctor comes in and and you hear them whispering, as people do, you know, you're still conscious, but you hear people whispering. They talk lowly so that you won't hear. And the doctor says, it's going to be any moment now. It's going to be any moment now. I don't want to get to that point in my life and and realize that I've never lived. And a lot of people do. You have all the houses and all the cars and all those things are fine if your focus is on the Lord. We need to take inventory of what we really have. Not what other people have. What has God given you? What's in your soul? What can't be taken away from you? That's what's really valuable, isn't it? Whom have I have in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing on earth. See, that's his final conclusion. Now he's going to say some more things. But in verse I have verse 25 highlighted in my Bible in in blue, and I have it starred. Because that's the answer. That's the answer when we're suffering, as those who attempt to live godly lives. When it all gets down, when everything else is washed away, who have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. It's you. You know the greatest thing about heaven? The greatest thing about heaven is going to be Jesus Christ is there. We'll get to be face-to-face with him and have eternal fellowship with him forever. Everything else is Gravy. Everything else is the dessert. He's the main course. His application continues, and I'll say it quickly. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and heart of my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. He's going to proclaim it. I am so glad that the Holy Spirit permit him to write his thoughts down in this particular psalm. So when he viewed, when he viewed the situation from the divine perspective, he realized how fragile for what, uh, what passes for prosperity really is in the lives of those who do not honor God. And in the end, Asaph understands that real prosperity kind of prosperity that can never be taken away from you. Real prosperity lies in one's relationship with the Lord.